I want to give you a little more background about the platform this morning, although Perry began us and told you a little bit about where this platform came from. As he mentioned, there was a bidding war at last year's auction for this platform, and I I think the bidding war may have been set up a little ahead of time because we did have the gentlemen on the right and the ladies on the left bidding against each other. And as you heard, I ended up saying, well, all right, I'll do both platforms. Twist my arm to uh, raise a little more money for Wes. The men, I think, thought that they gave me the hardest topic, ethical sex or the ethics of sex. But the truth is, it was nothing compared to what I got from the women. Sex is actually so much easier to talk about than telling the truth to each other. The women asked me to speak about when to vent, when to keep silent, when to tell the truth, and how to deal with people who drive you crazy. So thanks a lot, ladies. (laughs) This is a hard topic, and I think there's a reason in a religious community why this can be so difficult to talk about, especially in a religious community like ours, a community that is centered on human relationship and on the belief of human goodness in every person. In that kind of community, that kind of congregation, we don't like to think about how difficult relationship really is. It may, in fact, be even more taboo than sex, talking about not getting along in a religious community. But the truth is, why would we get along all the time? You know, human relationship is difficult. Those of us with partners or with friends, with children or parents, and I think probably everybody's in one of those categories, knows how hard that relationship can be with the people we are closest to. In our our work situations with coworkers and colleagues, with fellow students, we know how hard relationship can be with people that we are thrown together with. And here in a religious community, We are somewhere in the middle, thrown together with people we choose to be with that we feel close to, but we don't know them all. Actually seems like one of the hardest places to have good relationship. It's important though, I think, this topic, it's important to think about how we stay in good relationship with each other, how we build it. It's partly important because, I'm sorry to say, we don't always get a good rap. I have heard people talking about religious uh, groups and about liberal groups, that they're great at looking out for people as a whole, for, for justice and the kind of people out there that we want to take care of, but not so good with people in the individual. Well, I hope that that's never said about this community, but I think we have to work to make sure that that's true. We have to work to make sure that we're not looking out just for people as a whole, but for each individual person as well. That what it's like to live in this community is resonant with what we say about ourselves, what we hope to be. So in the end, I decided I really enjoyed these questions. They were something to struggle with, and so here we go. And and I want to address them really as the questions that the women brought to me. So their first question was, under what conditions is venting 
healthy, and ethical. The starting point here, I think, is that we can't control our emotions. I think that there are things that we can do to help regulate them, to regulate how we experience our emotions. In fact, I think spiritual practice is one of those. You know, we spent some time this morning in this singing meditation, and I joked that it would make me feel so centered to have that every morning. But the, the truth is, it really would make me feel centered to have that every morning, although that is not an open invitation to the chorus to arrive at seven at my doorstep. There are ways, I think, that we can buffer our experience of emotions. But emotions are an integral part of what it means to be human part of the range of human experience, good emotions and bad. I work with a spiritual director who comes from a Quaker background and so a theist background. And so his language is a little different from ours, but I love what he told me the other day. I was talking about wrestling with a difficult emotion, an emotion I thought I oughtn't have. Um, And he said, you know, Everything is the way you are made. All the emotions that you experience, all the thoughts you experience are part of how you are made. And God doesn't make junk. (laughs) He was trying to say, I think, that it's all right to experience those emotions, even the ones that we feel are darker, the darker side of ourselves. What we do with them, though, is in our control. So here's what I think about venting. Actually makes me think of the HVAC system in my house. Venting for humans, not HVAC systems, is a way of expressing emotions to another person who can be a listener. So I'm assuming right now that when we talk about venting, we're talking about speaking with someone who's not part of the situation, a third party. For me, the way to keep that kind of venting healthy and ethical, the words in that question, are to make sure that you have self-awareness about what you're doing. To be able to acknowledge to that person, you know, I really need to vent right now. I just need to, I need to share with you the dark emotions that I'm experiencing, the dark pieces of my soul, the way that those folks are driving me crazy to identify it to yourself and to the other person. And then, by all means, I would say, let it rip. You know, share with that other person how you're feeling. Let yourself express those darker pieces of your soul. And then, I would say, five to ten minutes into that, start to turn the tide. Begin the process of seeing your experience from a different perspective. Sometimes when I'm venting, I'll stop myself and say to the other person, you know, I don't think I'm being fair. I think she really does mean well. Or, but I can see that I'm probably driving him crazy as well. So begin that process of turning things around of seeing how another person might experience that situation. I think part of good venting, too, is finding the right person as your ventee, the right person to listen. You want someone who can start with just listening and not problem-solving, someone who can withstand the onslaught of those dark emotions and nod and smile 
And then you want someone who can turn the tide with you, who can help you to start asking the questions about the other person. You want someone, I think, who holds some of your basic assumptions and values. In this religious community, one of those assumptions is that every person is worthy. Now, worthy people can still drive us crazy, but we don't forget that they're worthy. So something for you as venter and you as ventee to check is that all that's being said can still be said while acknowledging that person's worth. That you can say in fairness your experience, your darker emotions without making it seem as though the other people in the situation are worthless. Because I think in this religious community, we know better than that. The next question was, under what conditions is silence the better choice? How do you know you're not just being passive and wimpy? I have to say that the women who got together to come up with these questions, I'm not sure I would really identify any of them as passive and wimpy. So. <laughs> but I appreciate that they put the question in there anyway. I don't think it's ever really good to silence our emotions. But I do think that there are things to share very carefully. There's a difference, as we talked about, between venting to someone, to that third party who can be your listening ear and then your check and balance, between venting with an awareness that that's what you're doing and venting at the person you're frustrated with. My experience, at least, has been that that kind of venting is rarely helpful. It sets up a kind of conversation that I think is difficult for people to enter into. But I do think that there's a big difference between that kind of venting on one hand of the spectrum and silence on the other end. Silence, I think, often means swallowing our emotions and our emotions tend to give us indigestion. So then the question that followed on is how we do let out anger in ways that don't damage us or the ones we are angry at. And it's a great question because after all that venting, you know, after you've gone to that third party and you've let off the steam you need to and you've shared that dark piece of your soul, and maybe you've begun to turn the tide a little and they've helped you along with questions, well, you still have to go back to the original person and talk about what went wrong. You still have to go back and engage in relationship and share your experience. I think then it becomes about finding a way to speak up so that you'll be heard. Some of you might remember a platform that West member Chris McCubbin gave over the summer. And she talked about how to change other people using a kind of organizational change model that she uses in her professional life. The thing that I really liked about her talk was that she stressed efficacy. That, that 
not only do we want to act out of our own values and beliefs, but we want to act, too, in a way that's effective. We want it to work with the person we're talking to. And I think when we're talking about something that's very difficult, something that makes us angry, we want to make sure that how we work with the other person is effective, speaks out of our values of inherent worth, and is effective. There are, I think, a number of techniques that can help in those situations. Things like nonviolent communication, which a number of West members practice, relationship building, one of the core West classes about how to talk with each other. Techniques that can help us get from that deep place of anger into a kind of communication with another person. Help us figure out sometimes even the words, the language to start with. I think that third person you've been venting to as well, that perfect ventee that you've uh, found in your life, that person can help too. Part of turning the tide in that conversation is figuring out what language you might use to talk with the person about the situation. Underscoring all of those techniques, I think, that NVC and relationship building, all of the different ways that we can use communication, underscoring them is, again, that sense of self-awareness and care for the other person. I'm going to return to that idea of care in just a minute. But I want first to, to share a tip, I think, to help you check whether your communication is good and effective in difficult situations. It's a tip, actually, that I learned from another religious community that I served. They had a membership meeting coming up, and they were dealing with a volatile issue, a, a change to their name. And people felt so strongly about that change. You know, they wanted the change. It would make them feel included and, and welcome. No, the, they didn't want the change because the history was so important to them. And there were good reasons to feel strongly about that. Well, they had a team who had been working with the congregation over a year, a year and a half on process so that they could make sure that they felt heard, that they understood other people's viewpoints, but they were still worried about how that one membership meeting would go, still worried about whether people's tempers would flare up when they were together at that meeting. And so they invited the teens to join them. The teen group as a whole came with them and sat in the balcony. They were acknowledged and welcomed and celebrated as special guests at the membership meeting. Can you guess what happened? People were on good behavior. They spoke still their truth. They spoke what they cared about around that name change. But they did it respectfully. They did it in a way that they felt proud to have their teens here. So that's a little tip to imagine that a child is present. And in this community, with our children running around and grabbing cookies and making their way through the crowd, a child might well be present. To imagine a child, a teen, is hearing you and to speak in a way that would make you proud to have them hear you. Staying silent, I think, means that we don't grow, that the other person doesn't grow. When we swallow our experiences and our emotions, not only do we get that indigestion, but we lose the chance to grow in relationship with each other. 
to grow in understanding. This is what it means to be in a religious community, I think, to be really in any kind of community, that we are a community of accountability and of caring, that we want to grow and change in relationship with each other, which means that we stay at the table when things get difficult, and we keep talking, and we talk in ways that we'd be proud to have our children hear. I, and I'm sure some of you, have had that amazing experience of talking about a difficult issue with someone who I know cares about me. The experience of being transformed in that conversation, of really coming to a better understanding with that person. And so I think that may be one test to know whether it's time to bring your anger or your concern to another person whether it's time to enter into a difficult conversation. Can you say that you care about that other person? Can you find a way to care more deeply about them? When you can find just that one piece, when you can say, yes, I care about about this person, I care about how they hear what I say, when that feels comfortable, I think you know you found the right time to talk. And then, too, I think in ethical culture, we are lucky to have our handy rule, which many of you know, you can probably fill it in with me, act so as to elicit the best in others and thereby in yourself. I actually find that rule incredibly convenient. It's really helpful. You act to bring out the best in another person and in so doing, to bring out the best in yourself. I do it as a little mantra sometimes when I'm in a particularly long line at the post office. (laughs) What will bring out the best in the postal clerk when I get up to the desk? Will it be rolling my eyes and shoving my package and sighing heavily while I look at my watch? No, actually it will not. (laughs) And so, I think in our closer relationships, too, as we express anger, are we doing it in a way that acknowledges the depth of our own emotion, but allows space for the other person? Part of that little phrase, that little adage, allows for the opportunity of change in ourselves, transformation in our own person. We're not just eliciting the best in another. In so doing, we're eliciting the best in ourselves, and we might not know yet what that best is. And so I think another test about whether it's time to start a hard conversation is whether you are open to change in that conversation, whether you are open to transformation of your own experience. If you want to just show how angry you are, and sometimes, sometimes that's where we are, right? Sometimes we sit with an anger or an upset so deep that we do need to just express it. I think there are ways to say, I'm angry, I want to talk more, but I can't do it right now. I'm going to come back. I'll stay in relationship with you, but not this afternoon. And to then wait until you can answer those questions Do you care about the other person? And are you open 
to transformation. The next question made me smile. It was, is honesty the best policy always? Are white lies never an ethical option? As a parent... (laughs) Honesty is hard. (laughs) I think it is important to being in relationship, to caring about each other. But I do think that it's fair to ask ourselves whether honesty is helpful or likely to be successful in a given interaction. White lies are usually used for things where the truth is not helpful. A haircut that's already done. A performance that's already over. It's not helpful to share, perhaps, the fullness of our experience of that haircut or that performance, at least in the few minutes after the barbershop or the concert's over. Sometimes, though, I think we do want to know. When I was in college, I cut my hair very short, you know, little curls all over my head. People mostly said that they liked it, I think. I kept it that way for a couple of years. And then finally, I decided it was time to grow it out, at which point my boyfriend, my roommates, and my mother all confessed that they had hated it the entire time. Now, I didn't want them to tell me right after I got out of the hair salon, but it would have been nice to have known right before I went in again. There are, I think, different opinions about this question. As a parent, I do struggle with it. My daughter currently won't eat anything that's been toasted. She'll be in the dining room, and I'm in the kitchen making her breakfast, and she calls out to me, Mommy, I'd like an English muffin, please. Not toasted! Well, untoasted English muffins are are really, don't taste very good. They're terrible. She likes them toasted. But, and so I sneak around the kitchen, (laughs) saying, no, no, honey, that bing was me toasting my English muffin. Yeah? And then I bring her the plate with the English muffin on it, cooled down so she can't tell, and she asks suspiciously, did you toast it? And I say, mmm, and it has butter all over it. There are, I think, ways to share. I would like to say you're all now in on this, and if I hear of any of you talking to my daughter, you will be invited to come over and give her breakfast. There are ways, I think, to share one's reaction without really lying. Occasionally, I'll say, oh, you got your hair cut. How are you liking it? And then I can hear, and if they say, I love it, you know, I'm likely to love it too. It's tricky, though, to skate that fine line between being honest and being a little too honest. I'm comfortable with white lies, but I know that not everyone is. And I I will say that over time, I think they can erode trust. I'm never quite sure if my mother likes my hair. I'm curious what all of you think, what white lies you tell or don't tell, 
And I hope that you will not just say you agree with me to spare my feelings. <laughs> Our final question was the million-dollar one. I can't read it to you exactly as it was written. How do you deal with people who drive you censored, crazy in a small community such as Wes? <laughs> this is, I think, a deeply religious question. They usually are if they have swear words. <laughs> you know, even if we have figured out how to speak honestly to people that we are in good relationship, there are always folks that we just don't quite get. We have them in our own family. We have them in our workplaces. We have them in our religious community. It's tempting, I think, to just say, well, that's fine. We can't click with everyone. Some people drive me crazy, and I'll just avoid them. As one of your religious leaders, though, I have to say that that is not acceptable. It's not acceptable when I do it myself. It's not acceptable for any of us. Or it is perhaps not enough. Inherent worth is fundamental to our faith, that belief in the deep worth of every person. I, at least frequently, get questions from people about how you find the inherent worth of Nazis, you know, the, the, the typical, oh, and, you know, and then you go to Hitler. But honestly, it's harder to talk about the inherent worth of people that we simply don't like. Our belief, though, calls us into deeper and better relationship. There are, I think, some practical tips. It often helps me to know someone's story, to know their context, to learn about their experience, hear it from them or hear it from others, so that I can begin to see a picture of this person. It helps me understand why they might act in a certain way, but also it helps me to find a way to connect with them. It helps me to cultivate empathy. It doesn't mean that you have to like everyone, but it does mean you have to acknowledge that worth that lies deep inside them. Now, I'm not immune from finding people annoying. And you aren't going to want to work closely with every single person. But I do think in our community, we need to be able to treat every person kindly. To look at every person in a way that acknowledges that they are worthy of love. They may, of course, also have the capacity to do real harm, Stay tuned in December, I'm talking about evil with a capital E. But to acknowledge that possibility for good, that worthiness for love, that's our task in this congregation. So it helps, I think, to know their story. It helps, too, to find ways that you are similar to find ways to connect, even if it's just that you both like pecan sandies at coffee hour. It's times like this that I wish that we had a more robust tradition of prayer. Or actually that we had any tradition of prayer. I don't know who I'm kidding with robust. 
not intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer means asking for something. It's an expectation in intercessory prayer that you would get what you pray for. That hasn't been one that has spoken to me. But prayer as a way to change your own heart. The Quakers call this kind of prayer holding someone in the light. Just keeping a person in the light, holding them in the circle of your love, however difficult that may be to imagine. Starting with just holding them. Forget the circle of love. Just holding them. It helps us to understand, I think, that being in relationship is a process, not an end point. It's something that we work at together. There's a quote I love from the Reverend Mark Morrison Reed that I want to close with. He writes, The central task of the religious community is to unveil the bonds that bind each to all. There is a connectedness, a relationship discovered amid the particulars of our own lives and the lives of others. Once felt, it inspires us to act for justice. That quote is often used when talking about justice, about those people out there that we want to work for and work with. But I think for me, it tells us also about the people here, the people that we want to love and care for. Let us be, then, a people that not only acts for justice, but lives that justice in our community. Let us be a people that seeks to know each person, to see them for the precious being they are. And let us be a people that struggles with the questions of what that really looks like, beyond beautiful words, a people that tries to find answers together.